The Secrets of Brand Donald Trump Revealed. And from stodgy magazine to at least slightly less stodgy multimedia juggernaut, How the New Yorker Did It. This is episode 36 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom Asaka and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asacker. Tom, the secrets of brand Donald Trump revealed. I know, I've been waiting for this. You know, I've been wondering what took us so long. I mean, talking about Trump on a media and branding show is like talking about a massive hurricane on a weather show. It, <laughs> it, it's like so damn obvious. What, what have we been waiting for? <laughs> I don't know what we've been waiting for, but it is about time. And I think it's important to note that... You know, when we talk about Trump, it's different from how most people are talking about Trump, right? Because we, we could care less about politics for the purpose of this, uh, this podcast. It's really about the lessons from media that emerge from brand Trump, yes? Exactly. As a matter of fact, uh, every other media property talks about Trump for a specific reason that we'll get into that you and I could care less about. But we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah, let's get into that. I took the liberty, Tom, and I know I'm uh, dropping this on you, um, of creating what I called a list of 10 Trumpanetics. Oh. You know Dianetics? Yeah, I like that. Trumpanetics. This is Trumpanetics, okay? <laughs> 10 media Trumpanetics. Okay. These are the 10 must-dos, at least, and, and you react to this and you tell me what I'm leaving out because there are probably three or four left on the table I here. I do it. Okay. By the way, these do these are not necessarily easy. These are just effective. well. The word okay. Trumpanetics wasn't easy, so it's obvious. <laughs> so, but, but go ahead. <laughs> okay, number one, begin with fame or infamy. Be known and familiar. Now, <laughs> that's easier said than done, right? But let's not underestimate the importance of being a familiar face, a familiar voice, a familiar presence. It's like someone we either respect or despise, or love or hate. But at least it's someone we know, right? That's true. Now, are we going to talk about all these as you go through them one at a time? I think that would be best. You think so? You want, <laughs> yes, should, should, too should, many. Should, should, should I expose the game that, that Trump is actually pay, playing in case people... Yeah, you expose the game. And then let's see if my points... Uh, right, then we'll see if they do. Because I'm not sure people understand this game. Um, and I hate to say it, but political branding is, is a big reality show. It's all about right. awareness and pandering. It's about getting your name out there, mm -hmm. having it powerfully associated with what, with what voters want to hear. It's usually driven by their frustrations and fears and desires. And then that's the end of the story. It's like those carnival sideshows. <laughs> Seriously. You remember those carnival when we were kids? They had those carnival sideshows. They had like of Snake Boy and Rubber Girl. They had these big pictures and they're behind that curtain. Of it's course. the same thing. It's an impulse buy. Right, you're trying to move people with emotions and stories and language and signs and taglines. There's no consideration of the customer experience or repeat purchases because ultimately what people discover after they pay or vote is that Snake Boy is a tattooed kid and Rubber Girl is a yoga practitioner. Listen, first of all, first of all, nobody discovers that. I remember distinctly as a kid watching someone turn into a werewolf in front of me <laughs> through the artful use of mirrors, and I thought, wow, that was really convincing. I'd like to see that again. <laughs> and as anyone who's ever seen the movie Freaks knows, you know, these creatures do exist oh, in the real man, world. I so who there I you go. I was talking to here. Okay, go ahead. That's right. You got to remember. You got to remember. <laughs> All right. Now go ahead with your well, number one makes you're, perfect you're quite sense, right. doesn't it? 
Yeah, number one makes perfect sense. It also is your first point, right? right? It's being familiar and then pandering. Um, Number two, stand for something clear, unambiguous, and startling. Startling, not necessarily extreme, but startling. Delight, shock, whatever kind of emotion you want to use, but something which grabs attention. Well, and what what grabs attention? What grabs attention is what's going on in people's guts, right? So what they're pissed off about, what they want, what they want. And that's what he's giving them. He's just fueling it. Number three, ABT, always be Trump, a.k.a. always be on brand. I mean, what's interesting to me is the stuff he does is so... The reason why people laugh at the stuff he does and relish it is because it's so completely in line with what they expect him to do. (laughs) When, When someone said to you, hey, Mitt Romney has an elevator for his cars... The right answer for Mitt Romney should have been, you bet I have right. an elevator for my cars. Don't you wish you had an elevator for your cars? No, I know. That, listen, that's a, that's a big uh, political celebrity tactic anyway, is when somebody tries to call you out on something, what you do is you exaggerate it and you say, oh, my God, I've done much worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> Number four, pride wins about yourself and your cause. Winners win even when they lose. Well, nobody wants to see anybody, quote unquote, flip-flopping, right? How many times has that taken a candidate down? That can always, that can always be explained away, <laughs> always explained away. Be right every exactly. time. Number, number five, and this one I think is, is important, be the news. Don't just hijack the news. Enter the news cycle at its most vulnerable point. Now, everybody knew who Donald Trump was, and he could you know, hijack the fact that there was an election going on, but he can't be the news unless he's in the election. <laughs> well, look, that's, that's what people, and I don't know if you're going to get to this in, in, the, in the last five, but that's what people I think are missing here. And it's, it's uh, there's this critical digital component of messaging today. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe this becomes clear if you understand that Trump goes out and creates this spectacle and he does his political pandering, right, to get his message across. Mm-hmm. And then people, they want to witness and read about the spectacle. So that means mm-hmm. his name drives big-time web traffic. And media companies, web traffic means money. To many, it means survival. So what are they going to do? Are they going to write an article about Rand Paul when you can get 10 times more views and dollars by running, writing an article about Donald Trump? Yeah, let me, let, in fact, that relates to one of the points I had here, so I'm going to skip ahead to that for the purpose of this conversation, and that is this. The stage or the network, and by the stage, I could mean the debate stage. The stage or the network is not the brand. The talent is the stage, the network, and the brand. That's your point. Everything else, as I put it, is just a network affiliate. So Trump's the brand. Trump's the network. Everyone else is an affiliate. So the people who put on the, uh, the, the, you know, the Fox uh, debate, uh, they were so disgruntled. Trump didn't attend. Even still today, they're trying to create the narrative that it was not attending that debate that caused him to lose the caucus. I don't think that's true at all. I think he is the debate. He is the network. He is the star. And that debate works for the people who are not Trump because they're not Trump, because their stage, their network isn't as big as the one provided by Fox or MSNBC or NBC or whomever. Whereas um, Trump the talent's bigger than all that. Yeah, no, that's right. Every theatrical move that he makes, when he, when he dropped out of the Republican debate, what did he do? He staged his own media event three miles away. Yes. He's trying to leverage this self-reinforcing cycle of attention 
that's going on. And you know, the funny thing is, is you got Google and Facebook who have these algorithms that say, if you, if you looked at this, we'll give you something similar to it. So we're getting fed Trump, 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 Trump constantly. Great point. And that leads to point number eight. Keep up a constant flow of surprises in the news cycle all the time. That's exactly your point. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, number six, I'm going to go back and forth between these. Um, with fans come haters. Um, no fan, no haters, no fans. With the perfect example, not just being Donald Trump, but look at Apple. There is a host of Apple haters out there. And yet, it's the fact that they have fans that mean they have haters and haters that mean they have fans, right? Well, yeah. As a matter of fact, Apple, you will see, will start losing some of that, uh, you know, that brand cachet because more and more and more and more people own iPhones, so they have fewer and fewer and fewer haters. And so it's difficult to distinguish themselves. You know, who, <laughs> who's their enemy now? Is it Microsoft? Not anymore, right? No, not at all. In fact, so your point is Apple needs more haters. They do. That's great. That's what's great. That's why you're not likely to be hired by Apple anytime soon. Or Disney. Or who else have we? <laughs> Number seven, learn fast and adapt. I think you have to acknowledge that uh, Trump has been a real student of the process as he's gone along. And that has lessons for any media brand, I think, to be responsive, to learn fast, to adapt, to pay attention. Yeah, it was funny. There was this kid at the gym this morning that was like bothering me. And, and, and I said to him, Listen, just get away from me, will you? And, and then I looked at him and I said, look, I love you. And he goes, who are you, Donald Trump? So, so he, he absolutely, he'll tell you one thing and then he'll tell you something else. Just... Tom gets into a fight at the gym. Um, and here's the last point I made, which is kind of related to keeping a constant flow of surprises. Constant communication. Silence is deafening. <laughs> if you notice, the media abhor a Trump vacuum. In fact, if you remember, um, after the caucus loss, I remember seeing media uh, entities complain that it had been tw 10 hours without a Trump tweet. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. It, that is something else. And I got to tell you. Out of sight, out of earned I media. I really do think it comes back, though, to... If you look at how, why is this working, really? I really think it comes back to this whole digital component. I'm telling you, if the internet didn't exist, these media properties, they could, they could say, ah, we, we, just won't, we just won't have them on. We won't talk to them. Right. They can't do that and now, now because... They can't do that with a brand that's bigger than that's they That's exactly are. right. Yep, absolutely. Uh, terrific. You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asecker and Mark Ramsey. From stodgy magazine to me multimedia juggernaut, how the New Yorker did it. As much as I hate to have a topic about the New Yorker, <laughs> because I just don't know how many people are interested, um, this is really an amazing success story, Tom. This is from, um, it's from The Observer. And the article is No Escape from the New Yorker, How the Proudest and Stodgiest of Legacy Publications Transformed into a Multimedia Juggernaut. And this is really fascinating. People don't realize just how big this entity has become and how big it's become because it has transformed itself across media boundaries. The publication, long known for its large and loyal following, has overcome a late grasp of digital and transformed itself into a multimedia brand. Listen to some of this. In the past 18 months, the Legacy Magazine has partnered with WNYC to launch an hour-long radio show, beefedupnewyorker.com, 
even introducing a metered paywall and continued to attract sponsors and big names to its annual citywide weekend of panel discussions, interviews, and performances. In December, HBO aired a documentary about the magazine's signature cartoons. There's an Amazon series premiering in mid-February. They won last year's uh, National Magazine Award for General Excellence, and its paid circulation at just over one million is at its highest ever. That's an amazing story, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's amazing because they understand what a brand is all about. In essence... A brand is all about the identity of the people who choose the brand. Look, it was mm-hmm. you, you could see, you know, when you say, how did they do it? It was revealed in the first paragraph of that story where they were talking about the magazine editor uh, and, and the chief, David Remnick, at, at some function. And he said, it said, he stopped to greet the celebrities and celebrity writers and writers who have become celebrities by virtue of being contributors to the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Celebrity, Mark, that's how they've done it. We've mentioned this before on the show, word. right? People don't choose record labels, movie studios, publishers, magazines. They choose the talent, the singers, the actors, the writers. They associate the art with that brand and thus with their own identities. And the New Yorker is smart because they're figuring out how to take that identity and expand it right? Mm-hmm. Into various media, events, like you said, Amazon Prime docuseries, radio shows, that's being smart. It's being very smart. I mean, in, in essence, the brand does not see itself as being confined by its platform of origin. And if that's not a lesson for every brand that considers itself in the media business, I just don't know what is. I think that, in fact, is the nub of every lesson for every media brand nowadays, to not be confined by your platform of origin, not just to reach out because you can, not just to do the podcast because you can, but as you say, because the identity of your fans, the interests, the desires of your fans um, live across platforms. And by the way, they were surprised when they did the, the, uh, the, the, the paywall and so on that their audience kept growing. I think what everybody needs to realize is every time you open up a new media outpost on some new media platform for your brand where your audience chooses to travel, you're going to grow your audience uniquely in those places. I may have mentioned this before, but when I was talking to the Dave Ramsey folks, you know the Dave Ramsey yep. show. Um, they were telling me, you know, we started as a radio show. We did then we did books and we did digital. We did all these other stuff, events, and we were concerned that the more we branch out to other platforms, the more we would cannibalize our audience. And in fact, exactly the opposite happened. In fact, what happened is they grew their audience because each of these platforms has only a partially concentric circle. Right? There's some overlap, but it's not universal with their, their audience on other platforms and they end up growing the audience altogether. Yeah, Mark, you know, it's funny because it's not just media brands. I think this is what people miss is that once mm-hmm. you can take whatever the brand is and you can associate it with the identity of the people who are choosing it. I mean, look at Red Bull. What is that? It was a, a some energy drink some guys found in Thailand and put in a funny little can that tasted terrible. And now look at it. It's a huge media company. Right? Mm-hmm. Why? Because they took the idea of you know giving you wings, uh, you know of that all that extreme sport and all that. And they took that and they said, how do we expand and touch people in different venues at different events and with different media? That's all brands should be doing that. 
Well, let's take a, again, you're talking about the identity of the fan or the consumer. Um, let's remember that, um, that George, uh, 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 Star Wars, um, uh, what's his Lucas. name? George, uh, George Lucas. Thank you. Blanking out. <laughs> George Lucas retained the ownership of the licensing rights for Star Wars at a time when 20th Century Fox thought they were valueless. That's just what I'm telling you. <laughs> and now, I don't know about you, but my brother grew up with Star Wars sheets and <laughs> Star Wars toys yep. and who had the most figures and let's swap a C-3PO for a Chewbacca and it was just unbelievable. So that's a perfect example. Even here in the, um, in the article, uh, the, the writer asks, can even the most ardent fan be expected to listen to an hour-long podcast, watch a 30-minute web show, read the magazine, and stay current on the web-exclusive content all in a given week? They ask that, they don't answer it. My answer is no, because you're dealing with one brand, multiple places, multiple audiences, right? That's right. Give them to it the way they want it. You don't know how everyone wants things. Give them the brand in different formats, different media, different platforms. That's right. I love the question in here, by the way, relative to the radio show, which, by the way, is on like 100 public radio stations, which, again, you have to believe that's growing the audience. So here's the, the, the question from the chief content officer at WNYC, which produces the show. Our job as audio producers was to say, what does the New Yorker sound like when it jumps off the page and into your ear? Isn't that exactly the right That's question beautiful. to ask if you're producing That's, an audio version of absolutely. something? Absolutely. All right, Tom, it's time for rants and raves. What do you have today? I'm going first again. Okay, so I think <laughs> this is a rant, and I really don't want to get into a, like an online debate with anyone over this. But I do want to make something clear. I really do. Because after our last episode and my sort of dismissal of Coke's new tagline as being irrelevant, we heard from a... Yes, you got some pushback well, on that. we heard from a listener. And, and, let, and let's, let me tell you what he wrote. So he writes, quote, As you well know, consumers are motivated primarily and ultimately by feelings, especially when messages are delivered through electronic media. Now, Lord knows I don't dispute those words because I, I think I may be the originator of brand as feelings. I don't know. <laughs> but he went on to write, I disagree that Coke's taste the feeling is not a terrific and utterly useful line of bullshit. I am satisfied it's fabulous. Okay, so here's where we part intellectual paths because I do believe most logos and taglines are pretty much irrelevant to the customer. <laughs> so I was trying to answer him. So I Googled to see what Pandora's tagline is. Right? So I, I Googled Pandora's yeah. tagline, and I quickly saw the results, and it said unforgettable moments. So I, And you, you have to admit, when you listen to Pandora, those are really unforgettable moments. This is what moments. I'm saying. So I started rationalizing. <laughs> I went, wait, that's, that's pretty clever. The music I remember is associated with unforgettable moments, and I can re-experience those moments through this internet platform so i clicked on this link unforgettable moments and it took me to pandora jewelry it's their tagline (laughs) (laughs) so look the reason the reason i even bring this up again is because of the recent hubbub over uber's logo change have you noticed the change on your phone Yes. All right. Yes, it doesn't affect me. This is least, what I'm yes, I said. It. I wonder if Mark, if that logo is going to change the way he feels about using Uber and its value. To I've him. used Uber. <laughs> I've used Uber in my mind several times since yeah, then. See, I didn't think so. So this is what a logo design guy had to say in a press release. He wrote, 
Uber's rebrand has attracted a lot of criticism from the public, designers, and the press, with comments ranging from it's confusing to it looks like Pac-Man. I think the level of criticism reflects two things. One, how much people love and care about the Uber brand, and two, how wide of the mark the rebrand is. Mark, here's what the criticism really reflects. People like to voice their opinions, especially negative opinions, about anything and everything. <laughs> and people don't like change. Yeah, and like Donald Trump, brands love it when you spread their name all over the place. That's right. right. So the That's Uber right. logo no, change is, is irrelevant. Their logo has changed mm-hmm. from a red U to a black and white icon to the new geometric icons. None of it matters, maybe except as a PR opportunity. Uber will continue to grow so long as they provide what people desire and that safe, comfortable, efficient transportation at prices, by the way, that are significantly less than cab fare, period, end of story. Yes, I've noticed that, in fact. (laughs) (laughs) That's what keeps me coming back. Of course it does. That's great. That's great. Well, I've got a couple for you, Tom, and I'm honestly not sure whether these qualify as rants or raves. One is definitely a rant. The first one I'm going to give you is the rant. The second one I'm really going to give you simply to make you crazy. But here's the first one. So I get an email the other day from trendwatching.com, and I was so excited because here's what the email said. Hi, Mark. On Friday, we sent you an email with details of the giveaway for our brand new book, our brand new book, Trend Driven Innovation. The response was overwhelming. 6,418 people from all over the world entered in our draw to win a copy. The good news? You're one of the lucky ones. Hooray! Did you enter? A copy of Trend Driven Innovation will be in the post on its way to you in no time at all. We can't wait to hear what you think, et cetera, et cetera. I was so excited. That was at 1217 on January 26th. <laughs> so imagine my surprise at 210. PM, two hours later, when I got this same email. Mark, we owe you an apology. Uh oh. <laughs> As you may have noticed, we just sent you an email about winning a competition for our new book. Unfortunately, <laughs> you weren't one of the winners. We made a mistake, a big one, uploading the wrong email list to the campaign. That resulted in us having a total Oprah moment. As a small consolation, you can download a sample chapter right here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, well, Tom, boy, this is another goofy PR thing, huh? <laughs> you can download a sample chapter, but we're not going to send you the whole book. <laughs> you know what? Until you just said that, even I didn't consider that that might have been a devious, uh, a devious plan. But you're absolutely right. How do you make a mistake like that when you got a handful of winners and you're uploading a list of 6,418 people? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to do that with my next book. I'm going to just send out you gotta millions of emails saying, you want a free copy? Oh, my God, I'm sorry. I used the wrong list. <laughs> um, you have to do this for your next book, too, Tom. This is my second item, and this is the one that's designed to make you All crazy. Right, go ahead. Um, this one's called um, Book in a Box. Have you heard of this? No, I remember Seth Godin put a book in a milk carton. Oh, no, no. This is nothing like that. This is um, Book in a Box is a new platform um, designed to turn your knowledge into a book in 12 hours. Oh, 12 hours. So, because as you know, Tom, books are for writing, not for reading. That's kind of insulting. They're going to take my knowledge. That means I have very little. Look, books are for writing, not for reading. And when I say for writing, I mean for writing by someone else because that's the key here. Okay, here's how it works. 
Um, number one, do you have a good idea for a book? Does it make sense for you to work with us? We put our editor on with you. They ask you questions. By the way, the total time commitment here, they spell out the time commitment just so it's clear that it's all going to add up to less than 12. Total time commitment, one hour. We suss you out, okay? <laughs> then, step two, um, we have in-depth conversations with our professional outliners, and we outline your book into a book form. That time that takes three hours of your time. So now I know you're getting a little impatient yeah, in testing I don't know. at this already point because you want this book done already. <laughs> three, write your book through interviews. What they do is they spend anywhere from six to eight hours interviewing you about your book, and those interviews become the content that becomes the book. That requires six to eight hours of your time. So you you better brew a pot of coffee, Tom. <laughs> Going to have to allocate some time for this book. Finally, interviews translated into book prose. You read through the manuscript. Now, this to me, this takes three to four hours of your time. And I really think this is the most unfair and unreasonable part, that you actually have to read this. Couldn't they just write the book without you having to read it? This is really... I might, I, I might try this because I've been working on this latest book for almost <laughs> a year now. I, I, what am I doing? I could have had this thing done. Three to four... Listen, at least don't spend three to four hours reading your own book. Come on. Exactly. Don't they have experts for that? <laughs> Finally, you get a professionally published book, and, um, and then, uh, then you're off and running, and then you can spend more, of course, to become a best-selling author. That's a, that's a separate price tag. But I don't have the prices here, but they're pretty substantial. And this is from Tucker Max. You may recognize that name, Tucker Max, oh, yeah. who is someone who has, uh, like Donald Trump, mastered all the Trumpinetics, from what I can tell. Well, so Tom, why are you wasting a year when you could waste only? Well, I'm going to Google that as soon as I, we jump off of this call, <laughs> so I can get moving. That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at SoundCloud, Podcast One, Radio Inc., Media Village, Net News Check, and the legendary American Marketing Association. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, the great Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio from media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>